0: today I'm going to actually fast forward to the slide where we left off last time and by the way this slide I added to our presentation so I'm putting it back up there because it's the verse that we were covering in Revelation 14 14 we had talked last time about the son of man references and if you remember we talked about how the son of man reference in Daniel 7 denoted really two things number one that he is the Messiah who has the right to rule. But he's also the son of man. He's characterized by being a man. So he's also our representative. And so we talked about the two R's. The son of man has to do with his right to rule and also the fact that he has the right to be our representative. Well, now this time I want to make some other connections to this son of man idea, that being to the Olivet Discourse and also to Joel chapter 3. So remember I mentioned in Revelation 14, this is the time to get a bunch of connections behind the scenes because when we get to chapters 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, we're going to just accelerate and we're not going to bog down in all these details. So with that, remember the Son of Man, it was depicted him in Revelation 4.14 as sitting on a cloud. It says, Then I looked and behold a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. So all of these things are significant. The fact that he's on a cloud, it's the Son of Man, and that he has a sickle. This connects us both to the Olivet Discourse but also to Joel chapter 3. So let me show you where. In the Olivet Discourse, and this is in your presentation, by the way, in your notes. I think it's either slide 4 or 5 that you have. Notice here we have the same imagery. Matthew twenty four twenty nine through 31 Jesus says this, He says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man, notice, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of, of heaven to the other. Now, dear ones, notice here, Jesus, in Matthew 24, 29 through 31, he's answering the second question that the disciples had asked. Remember, they asked two questions. When will these things be? What things? Will the things of the 70th week of Daniel. When you unpack the Olivet Discourse, that's what it is. Well, then they ask, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus is answering that second question, what are, what are the signs? And so remember all of the signs that he gave from Matthew 24, verse 4, all the way to verse 35, which we're in right here on the screen, all of that is answering the signs, all of them within the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, So, for example, notice the sign that happens at the end of the 70th week of Daniel is what? It's the sign of the Son of Man. Now, why am I pointing this out? Because all of the signs are within the last seven years. None of them will tip you off as to when that time period comes. Are you with me? And so what I want you to see is that the Son of Man coming in clouds of glory has to do with that final judgment, or what we refer to as the narrow day of the Lord okay it's the end of the age where the Messiah sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem okay now let me does anybody have any questions by the way with this? Anybody comments, concerns? All right, let me just show you some other things that if we understand the Olivet discourse and we understand Joel chapter three and the day of the Lord, you'll understand eschatology. so let me make you some connections here. notice in the beginning of verse twenty nine Jesus said immediately after the tribulation of those days. Okay, well, what time period is he referring to? Does anyone want to take a guess when he's talking about those days? Well, he's talking about the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, remember, all of the signs he gives are laid out in Revelations chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19. The wars, and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. And what does he give us as an indicator in Matthew 24, 15, but the abomination that causes desolation. How could Jesus be any more clear that he's not talking about things that happened during the church age now, but he's talking about the 70th week of Daniel? Why is that important? Well, notice he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. The term immediately, ethuaos, is very important because it shows us that what Jesus is referring to is not one age preceding another or coming after another, but he's talking about the coming of Christ, his return to set up his kingdom, after the small period, the 70th week. Now, why do I say that? Think about how absurd it would be to say, if, 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 if we take this phrase immediately after the tribulation of those days, many scholars take those days to refer to the church age. We, you and I are living in Now, are you, are you with me? They say, well, all of that's happening now. You see famines, you see earthquakes, you see wars. Dear ones, the wars that Jesus is talking about are the worst that will ever come about. So much so that he says, if those days had not been cut short, no flesh would survive. When do those t- things happen? In the book of Revelation, they say they're going to happen in the future. Are you with me? So the reason immediately, does everyone notice immediately is so important there? Is because it shows us the connection. If I said to you, the Iron Age comes immediately after the Bronze Age, well, that doesn't make any sense. Are you with me? Because obviously, one age comes after another. But it does make sense when you realize that immediately after the tribulation of those days, that's referring to a smaller period of time. It's the seven years. Why? Okay, let's take D.A. Carson. Does everyone know who D.A. Carson is? Wonderful scholar. I've learned tons from him. He will say all of the ideas in Matthew 24 and the Olive Discourse have to do with the events that are occurring now. The tribulation, the wars, famines, earthquakes, all of those things are happening now. And so it's just the church age. And so immediately after the tribulation of the church age comes this new age. But immediately tips us off that that can't be the case. Because it would be like saying, after the Bronze Age comes the Iron Age. Well, of course, immediately only works in macro, or excuse me, in micro epics of time, not in macro. It is good to say, immediately after I pack my bags, I'm going to my cabin. You use immediately in a small micro context, but not in a macro, one age going to another And so right there that tips us off that the tribulation of those days is the 70th week of Daniel. Well then notice it says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is very important because many people believe that that sign, those cosmic signs occur prior to the return of Jesus Christ before the parousia, the 70th week of Daniel. But notice... These occur at the very end. Does everyone see that? The sun, moon, and stars being darkened occurs after the tribulation of those days. So if you don't understand when the tribulation of those days is, then you have no idea when the sun, moon, and stars are going to be darkened. Well, the tribulation of those days is the 70th week of Daniel. So now the sun, moon, and stars doesn't tip you off as to when that time period comes. In fact, they come after. That is, the sun, moon, and stars are darkened after. Now the sun, Moon and stars being darkened connects us to Joel chapter 3, And that's the connection that I want you to see. Let's talk about this connection to the great and terrible day of the Lord. This is in your slide, your handout. I notice I have Joel: Joel 231 up on the screen. This is a paraphrase. I'm just giving you the data of what it says. Notice in Joel 2.31, it says the sun, moon, and stars are darkened before the great and terrible day of Yahweh. Now, does everyone notice that there's something that seems to have to happen before the great and terrible day of Yahweh? And so some conclude from that that there are signs that precede the day of the Lord. Well, then how do we have the doctrine of imminence? If something has to happen prior to the day of the Lord, then you no longer have imminence because it cannot happen until you see this. So, here's the grand point. When it says before the great and terrible, does everyone see great and terrible there? That phrase is only used twice in the entire Old Testament. It's both in Joel 2.31 and in Malachi 4.5. And notice Malachi 4.5 also says something has to happen before the great and terrible day of Yahweh. It's Elijah coming. Now, here's why this is important. The great and terrible day of Yahweh is not referring to what we call the broad day of the Lord, but it's referring to the 24-hour period where Messiah would return and fight against the enemies of God. In fact, it is the day in which all other judgments find their culmination. So here's what you have to realize. And by the way, Revelation 16, 14 talks about the same thing. The nations are gathered for the great day of God. Why is that important? Because that's the battle of Armageddon. That's the battle that occurs on that one day, the 24-hour day, where Messiah comes down and fights against the enemies of God. There's never a day like it. If there's one 24-hour period that is unique, that is the day of the Lord, it's when Jesus sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and fights against the enemies of God. Okay, But that is within what we call the broader day of the Lord. So think of it this way. We have a broad day of the Lord. That begins at the inception of the 70th week of Daniel. But then you have the narrow day of the Lord, called the great and terrible day. And that happens at the end of the 70th week for the battle of Jerusalem. All right? So, think of it this way. I love diagrams, as you know. Does everyone understand this diagram? Let me just make sure. Whoops, i got to pull up my pointer. You and I are living now here in this time period. And we have no idea when the 70th week is going to break out. We're just living some time in this period, right? Now, this is called the broad day of the Lord. That's at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel brings about the broad day of the Lord. How do we know that? Well, let me give you some indications. Who has a microphone? Uh, Yeah, Eric, could you read 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 3?
1: I'm getting lucky here. I turned right to first, to first Thessalonians. Wow. And you want 5.
0: Yeah, verses and, 1 through
1: 3. First Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3.
0: And everybody would turn their Bibles to that. I want you, everyone to see this, so hold on one second. We'll, sure, we'll wait. We'll wait for everyone to turn to that. Testing the
1: sound system here a little bit, too.
0: Yeah, that's all right. We're checking everything out.
1: So I'll read uh, First Thessalonians 5. Chapter 5, verse 1 through
0: 3, exactly. Three. And then this okay. will help us understand why the broad day of the Lord yeah. has to start at the beginning of the 70th week, and it has to be without signs. There's nothing to tip us off.
1: So here we go. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night.
0: Okay, stop there for a minute, Eric. Notice he says the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. What's very interesting is in the New Testament, there are two terms for thief. Sometimes one term is used for robber, but the two terms for thief is kleptase. Everyone's heard of a kleptomaniac. They can't stop stealing, right? Well, that comes from kleptase. It has to do with a thief who uses stealth in order to get what he wants. But then there's another type of thief. The term is taste, And they use force to get what they want. Well, What's very interesting is the term that's used here for the thief in the night is kleptase. So what's being accentuated is the suddenness, the stealth. There's nothing to tip you off. Okay, So keep that in mind. When a robber steals from you, they don't tip you off as to what they're going to do. So that's the way the day of the Lord is going to come. It's going to come upon you without warning. Okay, so keep going in verse 3. So verse 3
1: says, While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape.
0: Okay, notice here, while they're saying peace and safety, who's the they? Well, it's the unbelieving world. What are they saying? They're declaring, because these are nouns, they're describing that they think they have peace and safety. Everything is going splendidly. Now, let's remind ourselves of what we've learned thus far in the book of Revelation. We're putting this together now. Revelation chapter 6, um, by the way, does somebody have Revelation chapter 6 verse 4 that they could look up? Or maybe, Eric, do you want to just do that one too? Revelation
1: 6 verse 4?
0: Yeah, just for the sake of time, we'll look that one up too. But everyone turn to Revelation 6 4.
1: <clears throat>
0: okay. Uh, Revelation 6, verse 4. Okay, now let's stop just for a moment. Yep. When does Revelation 6, 4 happen? It happens right here on the screen at the very beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Revelation 6 is universally agreed as the inception of the 70th week. Now listen to what's taken away from the earth.
1: And another, a red horse went out and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth.
0: Okay. First Thessalonians 5.3, what are the people saying when the day of the Lord comes? They're saying peace and safety. Why? Because they have it. Now at the very beginning of the day of the Lord, the 70th week, there's no peace and safety. So you can't be saying peace and safety here. Why? It's gone. So much so that you've lost a quarter of the earth's population. So the only way that you could be saying peace and safety is out here. And that shows us then that at the inception of the 70th week begins what's called the broad day of the Lord. There's nothing to tip you off. There's no sun, moon, and stars that are darkened. There's nothing in the sky. Just like in Noah's day. Do you remember Jesus said, A wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign, but none will be given to it except what? The sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Well, Jonah was dead For all practical purposes, in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Well, the Son of Man was dead in the ground for three days. And how do we know that he was raised from the dead after that event? Well, we know it from the Word of God. That's all we have. The only thing a wicked and adulterous generation has that tips them off to the wrath of God coming is the Word of God. What did they have in Noah's day? There was nothing. According to Hebrews 11:7. Noah warned of things yet unseen. So there was nothing to tip off Noah's generation. In fact, Jesus says, the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. The point isn't how vile they were. The point is the suddenness. In the days of Noah, they're eating and drinking. There was nothing in the sky. There was no cloud far away. There was no vision. There was no, nothing to tip them off. They had the preaching of Noah. That's it. People have your preaching from the word of God. That's all they have today, to be tipped off to the fact that the the wrath of God is coming. So there's nothing to tip people off. So that's the beginning of the broad day of the Lord. Now notice how long this day of the Lord lasts. Notice I extend it all the way through the millennium. Now why do I do that? Because according to 2 Peter 3, verse 10, just jot this down if you're interested, Peter says that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night in which the heavens and the elements will melt away well that has to do with the new creation going from the old heavens and earth to the new heavens and earth Well, where do we read about that it's after the millennial kingdom in revelations chapter 21 and 22 okay so therefore we know that the day of the Lord is a broad period of time that lasts not only it begins at the 70th week but it it lasts all the way into eternity The day of the Lord was always going to be God's intervention. Destruction upon His enemies, but salvation for His people. Now, let's contrast that with what's called the narrow day of the Lord. The narrow day of the Lord occurs at the end of the 70th week. This is where the Son of Man is seen as coming on the clouds. Those are signs. So, all the signs that you're reading about in the Olivet Discourse, they're all occurring. Matthew 24, 4 through 8 Jesus lays out the beginning of birth pains. That's the first three and a half years. And then, from excuse me, from Matthew twenty four verse nine all the way to verse fourteen, he takes you to the end of the seventieth week. And then, by way of recapitulation, at Matthew twenty four fifteen, he says, "So when you see the abomination of desolation," he brings you back to the midpoint. And then he stays at the midpoint all the way through the great tribulation until Matthew twenty four thirty five. And that's answering what will be the signs of your coming. And all the signs are within this time period. And they culminate at what's called the narrow day of the Lord. And that's when you have the sun, moon, and stars being darkened. In fact, I don't know if anyone realizes, but the sun, moon, and stars, there's five different cosmic disturbances. In fact, I think I have them written out here. No, I must have had it. I forgot to give it to you on the previous slide. Well, anyway, there's five different cosmic disturbances, and they all occur throughout the 70th week. And the final one is the sun, moon, and stars that are darkened that you saw in the Olivet Discourse that we just read. And we also see it in Joel chapter 3. Okay, Now, these same events are alluded to. Joel chapter 3, Zechariah 14, Revelation 19. What do all of those passages have in common? They all have in common the battle at Jerusalem. That's the great and terrible day of Yahweh. So remember in Joel 2.31, it said that the sun, moon, and stars would be darkened before the great and terrible day of Yahweh. Well, you had the sun, moon, and stars darkened at the sixth seal, the fourth trumpet, the fifth trumpet, at the it's, there's another bold judgment; they're they're going to be darkened, and then you have it at the end of the 70th week, and then you have the return of Christ to set up His kingdom. That's the great and terrible day of Yahweh, the actual day that Messiah comes and fights against the enemies. Is everyone seeing the connections? Okay, now, what did Malachi 4:5 say? It says that Elijah comes before the great and terrible day of Yahweh. What did we learn back in Revelation 11? We learned that the two witnesses, ones like Elijah, they come at the the great tribulation period. They cover that last three and a half years. And so sure enough, they come before the great and terrible day of Yahweh, the 24-hour day where Jesus fights against his enemies at Jerusalem. So the point is, dear ones, there are signs prior to the narrow day of the Lord, but prior to the broad day of the Lord, you have no signs. And so the biblical writers used the term day of the Lord, sometimes referring to the 24-hour day when Jesus would actually return the Messiah. But sometimes it was used for a broader period of time. We use language very similarly. I remember I've used this analogy before. I would ask my grandpa what the cost of gas was in his day. Well, I didn't mean a 24-hour period, and he knew that. Because of the context, he knew I was referring to his life. And he'd say, oh, it was a nickel in my day, right? It was always a lot better. And it was. <laughs> they were freer. But what's interesting is when I asked him, what day, do you remember the day that Kennedy was shot? He would tell me, he says, yeah, I was at the barber. I was at uh, this shopping center. And he knows exactly. And he's, there I'm using day for the 24-hour period. The biblical writer's did the same thing. In fact, I'm not the only one that sees this. Let me give you a scholar who, by the way, isn't even a conservative. He was, I believe, in the 19th century or 20th century. His name was A.B. Davidson. But he was an Old Testament scholar, not a conservative. But listen to what he said. He said, though the day of the Lord, as the expression implies, was at first conceived as a definite and brief period of time, being an era of judgment and salvation, it many times broadened out to be an extended period From being a day, it became an epoch. That's exactly right. He sees the data correctly. Sometimes it's referred to as a day. Sometimes it's referred to as an epoch of time. Yeah.
1: Um, Actually, this is just a question. Um, Do we have clues within the Hebrew and the Greek as far as, do they have, you know how in those languages sometimes they have different words that, you know, in other words, we have the word day. It's just the same word, but we we understand it. In the Hebrew, are there different...
0: uh... No, they just use the day as well, and they use it kind of like we do. Um, Sometimes we use day. We're referring to a 24-hour day. But sometimes they would use it just like we would. In that day, you know, things are going to be great. It's going to... In that day, the Lord is going to judge his enemies. And that's referring to this broader period of the day of the Lord. And so that's what's confusing, because... I don't know about you, but when I was a newer Christian, I just racked my brain. I could not understand how the day of the Lord... To me, it always seemed like one day. Well, then how did you have all these events that would occur? The other thing that always confused me is, how do you have signs that precede the coming of the Lord, but then you have the idea of imminence? And I could not figure it out. And so I racked my brains for years until I finally found those discourse markers in the all of a discourse. That's what tipped me off. Yeah, so... Okay, let me give you another quote. This is from Kyle and DeLeach, 18th century commentators, 10 volume set, a masterful work, conservative theology on the Old Testament. They said this, they said, regarding the great and terrible day of Yahweh, that's the narrow day, they said, quote, it is the last decisive judgment in which all single judgments find their end. Now, why am I laying that point? Because that you have signs before. Elijah comes before that. The sun, moon, and stars are darkened before that. It is the one day where God himself sets his feet on a mountain and fights against the enemies. There will never be a day like it. It is unique. That's the great and terrible day of Yahweh, and it's referred to as the great day of God in Revelation chapter 16. And what does Revelation 16 have to do with the battle of Armageddon where all the nations are brought against Jerusalem? So other scholars are seeing the same thing. Yes, Eric.
2: Uh, I don't know. God just kept me from understanding, especially that Matthew verse until this morning. It seems clear now. But Okay. Um, so, But I was going to say on Matthew 24, it starts out, it seems like you almost need to go to the previous chapter because there on the last verse it says, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Matthew 24 starts out, maybe this is why, I don't know, God you can use anything to keep me confused but anyways it starts out with you know his disciples talking about the temple and Jesus says it'll be destroyed which happens before the day of the Lord that was not really a precursor to his coming or anything I think the question that he starts out on verse 3 is um, when he says his disciples came to him privately tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming uh, of the end of the age I think they're referring to his Am I right in saying he's, they're referring to his previous one in 39, where he's talking about they won't see me again until... So it, it kind of gets missed in the chapter break, I think.
0: Yeah, here, let me explain what's going on. So Jesus as the Messiah comes to the temple in Matthew 23, but the religious leaders miss it. And what's happening is now what, there's judgment being proclaimed upon the temple. Now, what should that bring to our minds? It should bring to our minds Ezekiel. Because remember in Ezekiel, when there was idolatry, what did God do? His glory left the temple, and it went out to where? The Mount of Olives. And then it went up. So Jesus, who is the very, very display of the glory of God, he is God incarnate, he leaves the temple desolate, and he goes where? To the Mount of Olives. And after his death, he's going to ascend from the Mount of Olives, just like happened in Ezekiel. And he says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. I'll be giving a sermon all about that phrase because it's used also in the triumphal entry. That's a messianic phrase from Psalm 118, 26. Okay, so what he's saying is you will not see me again until you recognize me as the Messiah. But because they don't, they're cursed. And the glory of Yahweh, Jesus himself departs the temple just like the glory of Yahweh departed in the book of Ezekiel. So this is what sets us up then for the discussion on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, the very location, sets in our minds the final battle that happens in Zechariah 14 because where does Messiah return? Remember, he leaves the Mount of Olives just like the glory of Yahweh did. Well, according to Zechariah 14 and Acts chapter 1, remember this same Jesus coming back in like manner, Where did he leave? He left the Mount of Olives. Where is he coming back? To the Mount of Olives. So Zechariah 14, this is the doctrine that they understood. That when Messiah comes and you have the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, that's all in keeping, they think, in their mind with the end of the age. So notice their question, when will these things be? Not just one thing, these things plural, and what will be the sign of your parousia and the end of the age? They're they're focused on the end of the age, not the 70 A.D. event. Now, what's interesting in both Matthew 24 and Mark 13, those apostles, excuse me, those gospel writers, Matthew's an apostle, Mark, I would call a prophet, when they write their scriptures, what you have to realize is they focus entirely on the future. In Luke 21, Luke focuses on... Yes, on the future, but he also addresses the 70 A.D. question. And that's usually what people have in their mind. They say, well, this is just referring to 70 A.D. The reason we know that Matthew and Mark are not f- focusing Jesus' words there is the reference to the abomination that causes desolation. That did not occur in 70 A.D. Um, no, nowhere did a Roman person put himself up and claim to be God in the temple. Yeah. So does that help? Okay. Very good. Yeah, so these are the connections that I think we have to make. And here's why it's important. How many times do you go to a prophecy conference and they pull out the newspaper and they say, look, look at all these earthquakes. They're always doing that. And you know what? There's nothing to tip you off to the broad day of the Lord. There's nothing. It comes like a thief in the night. You're always going to have earthquakes. You're always going to have wars in this world. But in the 70th week of Daniel, they're so bad that you lose over the half of the Earth's population by the time the trumpet judgments come, let alone the bowl judgments. And so that's why this is a unique time period. Okay? All right, so I probably labored that point enough, but now let me show you the connection to Joel. Joel chapter 2, verse 30 and, ver- and Oh, I'm sorry. sorry I just said one more. Sure.
2: Uh, oh, yeah, and the other thing was, I think a lot of us, when, when the beginning of the rapture, or the rapture happens and most of us, would agree that because God says we're not going to partake in His judgment, that that's when He'll rapture us up. But it talks about and Jesus, um, you know, when is He coming back? That's what isn't that what they say here? You know, when the the 23 was, uh, uh, I tell you, you will not see Me again until uh, you say, "Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord." But I think the confusion, another confusing point there, would be that He's talking about His coming. After the rapture not see that would be because the the thing is I would think that oh these are precursors to the rapture Which comes before the tribulation or right at the tribulation, but his coming there I I think is relating to His coming down after the rapture where he's already taken us up, which is a confusion
0: Yeah Let's try to work that through a little bit first of all the term parousia Does everyone know what that term means it means the coming? Of Christ, the technical expression. If there's one term that has to do with the coming of Christ, it's parousia. Okay? Well, the term parousia isn't a one-day event. It's a plurality of days. And the reason we know that is because in Matthew 24, 37, Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the parousia of the Son of Man. Well, what's interesting is there's an exact parallel In Luke 17, 26, where the same words are recorded, except Luke records it as saying, Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days, plural, of the Son of Man. So notice the days, plural, of the Son of Man is synonymous with the parousia, singular, of the Son of Man. And what that means is the parousia isn't just a one-day event. It's a plurality of events. How many in here would say the first advent of Christ was one day? Would anyone say that? Well, of course we won. It lasted 33 years, roughly. He was in his 30s when he died and then was raised from the dead and ascended on the high. So the parousia is conceived as a seven-year period. And so what we're really arguing about is if we're going to be exempt from the wrath of God, all we have to argue about is when does the wrath come? And all I've done is simply prove that the the wrath of God begins at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Why? Because peace and safety has been removed. They say... The day of, remember Paul says the day of the Lord will come while they're saying peace and safety. Well, peace and safety is removed at the beginning of the 70th week. At the very beginning of the fourth seal, right in the beginning here, you have a quarter of the earth's population lost due to sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. And so that's certainly the wrath of God. By the way, the sword, famine, pestilence, wild beast, that's an allusion to Ezekiel 14, 21. Because when Israel would rebel against God, he would send sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts, those four things. And according to Ezekiel 14, 19, what was it called? It's the wrath of God. So if it was the wrath of God then, what God does in the 70th week is he does a reversal. The wrath he used to pour upon his people Israel, he now pours upon the Gentile world, and he's going to save Israel. And so if it was the wrath of God in Ezekiel 14, why is it not the wrath of God here? I would like to ask any scholar who holds to a different view other than the pre-tribulational rapture view. If it, wasn't, if it was the wrath of God, how could it not be the wrath of God here? And if it is the wrath of God here, and of course it is, well, you've been promised exemption from the wrath of God. So therefore, you can't be there for that time period. That's the logic. That's why Revelation 3.10 is so important. Because you have kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell Where? Those who dwell upon the earth. Bless me, brothers and sisters. The phrase, those who dwell on the earth, what does it refer to? Unbelievers exclusively. So the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world, notice it's not a local tribulation. It's a worldwide one. And it's not designed for believers. It's designed for those who dwell upon the earth. Do you see how profound that passage really is? So if you've been promised exemption, you have, well, that means you can't be here all the way through this time period because it's the wrath of God. That's why you have to be removed. Okay. Now, let me show you the connection to Joel chapter 2. And this is what confuses a lot of people because they see these signs. Joel 2, 30, and then through chapter 3, verse 2. Joel says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. Verse 31, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. So stop there. There seems to be a precursor before the day of the Lord. But remember, it's the narrow day. It's the 24-hour period where Jesus returns at the end of the 70th week. So once we, And you'll see it in context why we know that. Verse 32, He says, And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. We learned about that in Revelation 12. That God would take a remnant of Israel and remove them into the wilderness and protect them. Keep going. This is Joel 3 1. Notice he says, For behold, in those days and at that time. So now we have a timing indicator. Now this is going to connect to when the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood. He says, When I return, excuse me, restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, where is the Valley of Jehoshaphat? Well, Jehoshaphat means Yahweh is judge. It comes from two terms, Yahweh and Shophat. And that's when you put it together, it's Jehoshaphat. So Yahweh is judge. That, That actual location is going to be the Kidron Valley, which surrounds Jerusalem. So this is describing that battle that occurs at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, where all the nations are going to be gathered against Jerusalem, And who comes and fights against them? The Messiah. He sets his feet back on the Mount of Olives. He left for the Mount of Olives. He's coming back there to fight against his enemies. That's the great and terrible day of Yahweh. Now, further context. By the way, one thing I want to point out, what's Jesus' name mean? Remember, his name means Yahweh saves. Isn't it interesting because the world rejects Yahweh as salvation? Yeshua? Yeshua? they get brought to the valley of Jehoshaphat, Yahweh is judge. So you either get Yahweh as salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, or you're going to be judged at the valley of Yahweh being the judge. It's one or the other. Now, I'm skipping ahead here to Joel 3, 12 through 15. He says, let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations... Notice verse 13, put in the sickle. Stop there. Where are we reading about the sickle? Revelation 14, the Son of Man has the sickle. Well, when's he going to put it in? At the end of the 70th week. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision, for the day of Yahweh is near, in the Valley of Decision. And notice what it says. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. When does that happen? It happens at the final battle at the end of the 70th week, the last, at the seventh year, when all the nations have surrounded Jerusalem at the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That's what's being described. Yes, Lonnie.
1: So the Valley of Jehoshaphat, that's also Armageddon?
0: Yes, I believe the battle begins there, which is obviously north and west, but the battle will culminate around Jerusalem. Yep, so all the nations will be brought to surround Jerusalem, and the text that I would cite for that is Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 5.
1: Yeah, and then when you say the beginning of the 70th week, that's also when the rapture starts, Exactly. when, when the, it happens.
0: That's right, that's right. Further proof of that is, remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, at the end of the chapter, I'm thinking 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul mentions what? He mentions the rapture. We're going to caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Then the very next verse, after he talks about the rapture, he says, comfort one another with these words. Then he says, peri-day, now concerning the times and the epochs. In fact, who has the 1 Thessalonians 5 one? Let me just read it to you. Turn your Bibles real quick. Let's make this connection between the rapture and the day of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians, let's begin in 1 Thessalonians 4. That's a very important question, I think, that we can address here. Let's start at 1 Thessalonians 4, and we'll start at verse 16 notice it says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry, a command, with a voice, an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. That's the term harpazo in the Greek. It means to be snatched. So for those who say, well, there's no mention of the idea of rapture in the Bible, well, there it is. The term rapture comes from the Latinized version, rapturo, okay? But the actual Greek term means the same thing, harpazo, caught up. So there's the rapture, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, notice the very next verse. Now, remember, there was no chapter breaks initially. This just keeps going. So the only thing that tips you off now that you have a new subject, but it's related, is notice it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.1, now concerning. Does everyone see that? In your Bible, it would say, or in the Greek Bible, it says peri-day. Now peri-day, see, you and I use paragraphs. We say, oh, by the way, I'm going to handle this issue now. But they didn't have Paragraphs. So to tip you off that, by the way, I'm going to do a new subject, but it's related to the old one, they use peri-day. Now concerning the times and seasons, brother, you have, no need to, you have no need to have anything written to you. Verse 2, he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Notice the connection between the rapture and the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night. The paracy of Christ comes like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord begins like a thief in the night. And Paul here is connecting it to the rapture. Well, why is he doing it? Because the very first thing of the day of the Lord is the rapture. The first thing within the day of the Lord is the the, uh, apostasy, the worldwide rebellion, and the revealing of the man of lawlessness, which is the Antichrist. What do you see in Revelation chapter 6 at the first seal? The man of lawlessness comes on the scene. You see, it fits like a glove. So the rapture has to happen prior to the day of the Lord. Why? Because you don't undergo wrath. And it also is something that comes like a thief. If something had to happen prior to the rapture, well, then it couldn't come like a thief. If something had to happen before the day of the Lord, it couldn't come like a thief. Are you with me? Okay. Does that help, Lonnie? Okay. So, yeah, the rapture begins there. Yep. Very good. Okay. So we just went through then Joel 3, 15, where the sun, moon, and stars lose their brightness. Now, let's talk about, get back to the text here. Revelation fourteen fifteen through 17, the Son of Man will reap the harvest. It says that another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. And he says, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Verse 16, it says, Then he who sat in the clouds swung a sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Now, notice here you have another angel. This refers back to verse 9. And so here you have a fourth angel in this whole dialogue that we've been reading about in Revelation 14. Now, notice this angel comes out of the temple. The term in Greek, naos, has to do with the temple that's in heaven. And one thing we have to remember is that the ultimate temple was always in heaven and that the earthly one is just a mere copy or shadow of what is in heaven. In fact, let's turn our Bibles to see this very fact. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 9.24. Hebrews 9.24 will show you that, yes, there's an ultimate temple that's in heaven. The earthly one that Moses made was designed to be a copy of that. So when Jesus makes mediation for us, he's doing it in the ultimate temple, isn't he? Hebrews 9.24, notice it says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Again, the idea is that he appears on our behalf. He's interceding for us. Now, what's interesting is the writer of Hebrews is gathering this all from Exodus chapter 25. Because in Exodus 25, remember there, Moses was commanded to model everything in the tabernacle after the pattern that was shown to him. And the pattern, of course, was that of the heavenly temple. Okay, so that's something we have to keep in our mind. When the angel comes out of the temple, that's the true temple. Now, what's interesting is notice you have a reaping And this reaping that we have of this harvest can either refer to salvation or judgment. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 4. Let me show you where Jesus talks about reaping the harvest unto salvation. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. By the way, here Jesus is giving his interpretation of the parable of the sower and to jesus that's the most imperable most excuse me most important parable because he says if you don't understand this parable how will you understand any of the other ones and the grand point that he's making in this parable is that the kingdom of god grows imperceptibly to man through the sowing of the seed the seed goes out which is the word of god and there's a kingdom that's being built but we can't see it There's no building project. There's no castle being built. There's no fortifications. There's no geographical boundaries. And yet this kingdom is really being built. It says, and he was saying, this is Mark 4, 26. The kingdom of God is like a man. So notice the like. It's like this. It's like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day. And the seed sprouts and grows. How he himself does not know. Notice it's imperceptible how this kingdom is... the the seed is growing to the man. So it is with the kingdom. Verse 28, the soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head. When the mature grain is in the head. Verse 29, it says, but when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now certainly there, the harvest is a positive thing. It would be a harvest unto salvation. Those who bore fruit because of the seed indicating that they really came to faith in Jesus Christ. However, there are many instances where the term harvest has to do not with salvation, but with judgment. Um, We saw one in Joel 3.13. Let me just back up. Notice Joel 3.13. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come tread for the winepress is full. Well, that's not a good winepress that you want to be in. That's the wrath of God. So it can be either or. So how do we know which one John is referring to? Well, context. Context tells us that the harvest that's being referred to here in Revelation 14 has to do with judgment. Why? Well, when we get to Revelation 14, 20, the blood of the enemies of God are going to be as high as the bridle of the horse. Are you with me? That would be a bad thing, okay, to be part of that. So I think clearly the context shows us that the harvest that's being referred to here is a negative one. It has to do not with salvation, but with judgment. Now, notice in the red, it says that the hour to reap has come. Now, that's important because it shows us that even the term hour or day can be used flexibly. It's not just a 60-minute time period, but rather it's a period of time, isn't it? That is, at least a 24-hour day when Messiah returns and other judgments after that. Uh, Notice also the harvest is ripe, That term literally means to become dry. And you see this all the way through, for instance, the book of Joel. To be dry is very ominous. Um, And you see this ominous note even in the Gospels themselves. Um, In fact, turn your Bibles to Matthew 21, 18 through 19. What I'm focusing on before you turn to that is notice in red where it talks about the harvest is ripe. It literally means it's become dry. Well, let me show you a connection that's interesting. Matthew 21, 18 through 19. Remember, this is that fig tree that Jesus wanted to eat of. Matthew twenty-one eighteen through 19. It says, Now in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry, seeing a lone fig tree by the road. He came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. It's the same term for ripe. It literally means it became dry. What's the problem with that fig tree? Well, the fig tree was bearing leaves, but it wasn't in season. So what's interesting is if Jesus was angry with the fig tree and it was in season, well, you would have all the other fig trees he could have just eaten from right next to it. But what some fig trees would do is they would bear leaves but they wouldn't have any fruit on them. Well, that's exactly the way it was with the religious leaders in Israel. It looked like they were going to bear fruit. It looked like they had the leaves put out. They had all the robes, and they had the high places. They had the temple. They had all of the grandeur and the splendor, but they didn't bear any fruit either. And so the cursing of that fig tree is really representative of the cursing of all of those who are really dry, That is, they don't come to Messiah. Uh, D.A. Carson, by the way, holds that same uh, interpretation. That's what it's about. The withering of the fig tree, it was dry. So dryness has to do with an ominous note. It has to do with judgment. Revelation 16, 12, at the Battle of Armageddon, the Euphrates is dried up so that all the nations can come against Jerusalem. Now, notice here also we have another angel at the bottom here at verse 17. This is a fifth one. And he also reaped, and that's important to realize that the angels are also involved with judgment. Okay, so it's not just the Son of Man that's involved with judgment, but angels as well. And we see that, for example, in Matthew 13, that the Son of Man, he says, will send forth his angels and they will gather those out of his kingdom and who are stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and they will be thrown into the furnace of fire. So the angels are involved and pouring out the wrath of God as well. God's wrath is poured out, verses 18 through 19, or 20. It says, then another angel, this is going to be a sixth angel now, the one who has power over fire came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had, a, who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. Okay. Now let's stop there for a moment what's very interesting is in red it talks about this this vine and it talks about the grapes of wrath here that they're ripe now right away that should bring to our minds Isaiah 63 because there the Messiah is depicted as treading out the winepress of God's wrath so please turn your Bibles to Isaiah 63 I want to show you a connection that's probably not too obvious But I want you to see that this is what's being referred to here in the book of Revelation, Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. Very intriguing passage. Listen to the question of the writer here, Isaiah. Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, he says, Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel marching in the greatness of his strength. Now, stop there. The one that's being depicted here is Messiah. And he's being depicted here as coming in wrath. Now, the question is, notice in Isaiah 63, 1, it depicts the Messiah coming from Edom, and it depicts him coming from Basra. Well, why would God have the Messiah at the end of the age coming from Edom? Remember, what do the Edomites represent? They're descendants of Esau. And they represent, because they're descendants of Esau, those who have always hated the people of God. They're the ones who always hate Jacob. Now, what's very interesting is Jesus, the Messiah here, is depicted coming from Edom. And what is he going to do? He's going to tread down the grapes, and he's going to be splattered in red. Well, what does Edom mean? It means red. So Jesus is, the reason why Isaiah is inspired by the spirit to write this is not only do the Edomites represent the prototypical enemy of God, but they also represent the color that the Messiah is going to be stained with on his apparel. He's stained with red and he's coming from the red ones. What does Basra mean? Basra in Hebrew means vintage. So here you have the Messiah coming from the red place and he's coming from the capital vintage place. And he's treading down the winepress and he's stained with the blood of his enemies. Notice it says, it is I who speak in righteousness mighty to save. Isn't that sad? They're not going to have salvation. The question is verse 2. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress through alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. So this is the Messiah doing it. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger, And made them drunk in my wrath. And they poured out their lifeblood on the earth. So you here have the Messiah coming and treading out the wrath of God. Now what's interesting is, remember, what was Israel depicted as? They were depicted as a great vineyard that was to bear fruit, but they didn't. How is it that you and I can bear fruit so that we don't become dry and in the judgment... Well, Jesus says in John 15 that if we, as the people of God, are attached to him, the vine, he's the true vineyard that Israel never was, then we will bear fruit. And we won't undergo this wrath where the vineyard that never bore fruit is going to be stepped upon and trodden down by the Messiah. So I think that that's a good implication that you and I should come with, come away from. What you and I have to remember Isaiah chapter 5, you had a vineyard who was planted. It was Israel that never bore fruit. And those who don't bear fruit, they're going to be trodden down upon by the Messiah. He's going to have their blood upon his garments. But those who will be connected to Messiah by faith, they'll be a vineyard that will bear fruit because we're connected to the true vine. That's how we are to be saved. Verse 19, let me continue reading Revelation 14. It says, So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now, notice 200 miles, by the way, is from Megiddo all the way to Basra, ironically just where Isaiah 63 was depicted uh, of Messiah coming from. So you're going to have this large area of bloodshed. Now, what about the phrase that the blood will actually be up to the, the horse's bridle? Do we take that literally? I think we use that as an idiomatic statement. An idiomatic statement, it would just simply mean there's going to be a lot of bloodshed. Um, what if I were to say to you, it's raining cats and dogs, and some guy from India came over, and he knew English, but he didn't know that idiomatic expression. It's raining cats and dogs? This joker thinks there's cats and dogs coming from the sky. Well, that's an idiomatic expression that means it's, it's raining really hard. In the same way, the blood being up to the horse's bridle, I think, is an idiomatic expression, meaning there's going to be a great bloodshed. And that all happens at the narrow day of the Lord. The narrow day of the Lord, where the Messiah himself will set his feet on the Mount of Olives. The very Mount of Olives that he ascended into the heavens, and it's promised that he's coming to set his feet again to judge his enemies. That's what this passage is teaching us. Now, I know we're out of time. Um, As we get into chapter 15 now, we've made it through chapter 14, we're going to be getting into uh, data that comes more quickly now. We won't have to get into all this background information. So thank you for bearing with me. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that by being connected to Jesus, the true vine, that we will be passed over from judgment in, in your wrath. We thank you, Lord. We do pray for our loved ones, family, friends, co-workers who don't know Christ. We pray that they would turn and repent. We pray that you'd give us boldness for the gospel, that they may be saved. I pray for Bob and his voice now and his stamina. We thank you for our teacher. We pray, Lord, that we'd have ears to hear your word from 1 John. We thank you again for today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.